0: Hi everyone, welcome back to Vox Tablet. I'm Sarah Ivery, your host. Today, from Spinoza to the latest neuroscience, an argument for how to be more ethical. More often than not, the public conversation about the failures of this country comes down to the question of character. Our kids aren't growing up to respect authority. They don't take personal responsibility, they make bad choices. It's a conservative argument, but it reflects deeply held ideas about the notion of free will and about the self. More and more, researchers in sociology, psychology, and neuroscience are asserting that this independent self that we are all so attached to doesn't really exist. What's more, there are philosophical traditions we can draw on, from Aristotle to Maimonides and then to Spinoza, which may offer more useful ways of thinking about how to foster ethical behavior and moral society. This is the topic of a new book by Professor Heidi Raven. The book is called "The Self Beyond Itself," and it got all of us at Vox Tablet Thinking. We are delighted today to be speaking with Professor Raven from her home in upstate New York. Heidi Raven, welcome to Vox Tablet.
1: Thank you so much, Sarah.
0: You subtitle your book, An Alternative History of Ethics, the New Brain Sciences, and the Myth of Free Will. And you start out by showing us how pervasive the idea of free will is, especially when it comes to how we talk about ethics and morality. Can you share some examples of that for our listener? For instance, how we try to teach morality in the classroom or how we respond to a tragedy like the shootings at Newtown or Columbine?
1: Yes. One of the first things I did in uh, looking at uh, ethics in America was to go to schools, and I was fascinated by uh, going to schools and uh, and seeing how they um, put together ethics curricula, which are very popular now, and they're mostly about character education, um, and that was the that was a model that uh, came in uh, before the '20s, and it was very popular, and then it was revived. Uh, in the 1980s till the present, and it's still uh, very pervasive. Now we talk about uh, they talk about character education um, as if uh, you know a kind of behaviorist. We're going to train kids to have a better character, and we're going to walk them through the paces of uh, being nice and being kind and being upright. What really happens, for the most part is that children are, tra- are are allegedly taught or they're trying to teach them to make the right choice. So it becomes an issue of free will of can you uh, resolve to do the right thing and know what the right thing is in this situation. But as we know from a lot of the new brain sciences Uh, That really misses the mark and is not uh, really capturing how we actually do act morally and how we make moral choices.
0: We're going to get into some of those studies in a minute and find out how people do make moral choices. Mm -hmm. But uh, before we get there, let's look a little bit also at history, uh, because that is uh, also an area of discipline in which people examine questions of morality, Uh, and specifically, obviously, the great tragedy of the 20th century, the Holocaust, comes to mind as a great... Morality or immorality tale. And a lot of people naturally come to the question of how could people have behaved so monstrously? Or conversely, how could people have been so righteous under such circumstances? How could they have been so good? What answers do historians provide to those questions?
1: The Holocaust is a very interesting example, and I take it as the example of good behavior and bad behavior. We often think of behavior as just individualized. Are you nice to your kids or um, are you nice in the subway or, you know, at, or at work or whatever? But I think um, when you look at large groups of people acting in extreme ways, uh, both bad and good, you begin to see something else. And then the question with the Holocaust is, is it, is it so extreme? that it no longer is relevant to anything. It's just so extreme. And interestingly enough, what we have there, and sort of this has been remarked on, is ordinary people acting in extreme ways. But they seem to act in extreme ways not because they make individual decisions, uh, that they personally assess each situation and then each person acts differently, but they acted together together. And that not only is the perpetrators, which we're of course accustomed to expect, but it was also true of the rescuers, so that it wasn't just a sort of individual person who was more moral than the rest, but rescuers tended also to be in groups of people who fundamentally understood uh, the situation, the Nazi situation, differently from the mainstream. So, for example, people in Le Chambon, the little uh, Huguenot village in uh, rural France, saved s- several thousand Jews, and they thought it was the natural thing to do. It was the natural thing to do because they were critical of the Vichy government. They did not have the same investment in um, in the legitimacy of Petain and of Vichy, they had a different view of the situation because they had a different history. They had different leadership. They had—they didn't necessarily have different values, but they did have a different
0: point of view. So morality is basically completely subjective and based on whatever context you happen to find yourself in. I don't think morality is uh, is
1: is totally relative at all. Uh, the it is not that the values are different; it is that the interpretation of the situation is different. So that the interpretation, for example, that Robert J. Lifton, the psychoanalyst, talks uh, brings up about Nazi doctors uh, is that they were taught, or they were, uh, they were. I don't know if they were convinced, but the whole interpretation of the situation in Auschwitz, and they were the uh, in charge in Auschwitz of the killing, was that it was killing in the name of healing, that it was that Jews were a cancer on the body politic. Now these are absurd claims, but they're interpretive frameworks, and they were interpretive frameworks that many people uh, took for granted and did not uh, critique, did not evaluate did not think through. So that their values were not necessarily different. They, they were making a claim to heal, but they were making a claim to heal that was based on a lie. That doesn't mean they're not responsible. It doesn't mean that they shouldn't be held responsible. But it does tell us something about how we need to manage not just actions, but the way people understand situations and have ways of of um, expanding and critiquing from the inside and from the outside the way that uh, groups understand situations so that they can live up to moral principles that we all claim to adhere to.
0: Now, you, among other things, you teach Jewish philosophy. And in your book, you look at the philosophical origins of the idea of free will. Now, this idea of free will is incredibly resilient in the face of all this mounting evidence that it probably doesn't really exist, or it's questionable at least. Who is the guy to blame for free will's endurance?
1: Okay, um, I'm going to begin answering your question by defining free will because uh, it it gets confusing, and philosophers have very precise ways of thinking about free will. So the way I define free will is it is the claim that we are beyond both nature and nurture. Uh, when we make a decision, that uh, we can make choices that um, may be influenced by our biology but are not fully determined by it, that uh, we may have various uh, histories of abuse or of good histories of uh, personal biography, but those only influence us. They do not determine the decision, that somehow our decisions and our choices can be free of all that, and they're just our own. And that is the notion of free will. I challenge this notion as a myth, because there's only one who, is, who really fits that myth, and that's God. God can be above nature and nurture, but human beings are within nature and within nurture, and that's really all there is. There's nature plus nurture and the influence of the present situation. Now that's the first thing I want to say about this. The second thing I want to say is that I don't think, is that I want to get rid of the word blame. Okay. And I don't only want to get rid of the word blame in regard to the theory and to the origins of the theory, but in regard to ethics, because we all are who we are and we act as who we are and as who we have become and who we are in this situation. So we want to have understanding and compassion uh, rather than blame. And that doesn't mean that we can't protect ourselves. And it doesn't mean that we're not responsible because we do things and we act. But it does mean that we're not going to have that kind of punitive uh, view. Mm -hmm. So the history of free will goes back uh, pretty much uh, to uh, St. Augustine uh, in the fourth uh, and early fifth century in uh, Latin Christianity. And For Augustine, of course, uh, the invention of free will, of course, there were threads of it, uh, uh, which he picked up and put together in a new way of looking at the human person as, in a sense, like God or as potentially like God, so that we, even though God had the power to be free, human beings were held to that standard, and that's why Adam could be blamed for uh, for eating the fruit, or and Eve. That's why they were uh, they were held responsible. So the whole notion of responsibility and blame uh, became very tied to the notion to this what I call the myth of free will, and it, and it really did away with. Other notions of ethics that are more based on compassion and of universal empathy, and also we see the human person as not above nature and above nurture in some separate spiritual realm but of this earth and of this uh, of this of nature. The mind is as much of nature as is the body, and that 's when we get Maimonides and Spinoza. And of course, when we get to Spinoza, we have the mind and body are not two things, but one thing described in two ways. We are a mind-body, and sometimes we describe ourselves in bodily terms, and sometimes we describe ourselves in mental and psychological terms.
0: Spinoza's ideas on how to lead an ethical life are complex. I wonder, though, in spite of their complexity, if you could give us a summary of them.
1: Oh, dear. Um, On one one foot, right? (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Okay. I have tried uh, in my book and also in some of my writing prior to that to translate them, to try to understand in a non-medieval, non-17th century Cartesian language what Spinoza is really up to, because if he's really up to something important uh, that's not of just antiquarian value, we have to be able to translate it into language that makes sense to us today. So I um, call it the self beyond itself. So what do I mean by that? Spinoza saw the human person rather than an isolated kind of atom um, uh, as belonging to all of nature and all of nurture. What that really uh, meant was that each of us is a product of everything the world has ever been, and of all the causes, uh, both mental and physical, that have ever existed. And we're sort of a location, a spot, a point in this vast grid of causes of the universe. And so all of the causes of the universe constitutes each of us. What does that mean? What that means is that we are really bound up with all of nature, and of all of history. And so when we understand that we try to pursue our own well-being, which is his Conatus, which is uh, a very biological and a proto-biological notion, we begin to realize that when we try to pursue our own survival and well-being out of our own desire for life, we are pursuing the uh, well-being of the universe, of all of us, of each of us, of of everything around us, because we all stand or fall together. So Spinoza has been revived uh, recently as an eco philosopher. Uh, the whole deep ecology movement, which tries to ground uh, eco values in philosophy, has been inspired by Spinoza and by Spinoza scholars. So what I'm trying to do is to show that's not only true about ecology. Uh, which is very important, of course, but is also true of moral psychology, that if we really understand moral psychology, it's not about each of us having uh, a a particular, an individual magical will and that we must make ourselves do certain things, but instead that we see ourselves as bound with others, as loving others, as as totally tied to others, and that we... In pursuing our own well being and our own transformation in life and our own goals, we can only do this together. We cannot do it alone and we can't do it against people and we can't do it above people. We must do it together.
0: Toward the end of the book, you really delve into the area of brain research uh, to look at the issue of free will. And I wonder if you can tell us a little bit what you found in that regard. Thank you. Yes. I found that there
1: are three areas of uh, neuroscience or three areas of discoveries in neuroscience that I think are enormously pertinent to rethinking moral agency, why we're ethical, how to get us to be more ethical, and why we're not ethical. And the first one is uh, what uh, scientists are now calling neuroplasticity, which is the flexibility of the mind. And I just want to give you a couple of statistics. Uh, There are a hundred billion neurons in the human adult brain, and our brains have the capacity to make one million billion synaptic connections. And those connections respond to the experiences we have, the culture we have, they make it possible for us to believe things, to desire things, to be influenced by our worlds. So this vast neuroplasticity means that anybody could believe almost anything. Uh, that belief is, is infinitely, I mean, for all practical purposes, infinitely vast. And this is both wonderful and also scary. Because this neuroplasticity gets pinned down not only by personal experience and personal biography, but also by culture and by group so uh one of the significant ways it gets pinned down is by what um are called uh, cognitive framing in other words the way that the world is uh is thought to be uh, according to groups and to culture so the vast neuroplasticity which but because it's neuroplasticity because it's the flexibility of the mind in believing Beliefs can change, but they don't change by willing them to change. You can't say, I'm not going to believe that anymore because I don't want to. Beliefs change because people learn and because people see wider worlds and wider points of view. And that's when beliefs change. So neuroplasticity is uh, gives us great hope for changing beliefs as we understand the world better and as we take in perspectives from all kinds of people who see the world differently rather than isolate ourselves. So that's the first thing that's enormously important. The second finding is what I call selfiness, which is Spinoza's Conatus, which is that we seek our own survival and that 's when we get this whole issue of self deception and deception of others because we uh, we both do this unconsciously and consciously, and we prefer to believe things that benefit ourselves, which is of course the a classic problem of ethics but we can't we don 't necessarily overcome it through merely uh, saying we we 're not going to be selfie anymore or that we 're not going to be selfish or we 're going to be altruistic, which I think is is um, is impossible uh, to merely do things for others because we're always involved. And that's when we get this, other, this final uh, piece of the puzzle, which I call groupiness or the self beyond itself. In other words, there is growing evidence from all kinds of uh, uh, subfields of uh, neuroscience and systems theory and all kinds of stuff that we identify with others, that we identify with groups, that we identify with other people, uh, that we are not we do not see ourselves in fact as isolated, but in fact see ourselves, we project ourselves into the groups that we identify with. And uh, see ourselves as a member, and sometimes it even seems increasingly the case that it is groups who perform actions and not necess- and individuals only in so far as they are parts of groups, and we have to begin to understand. Uh, the vast sociality of the human species. And, for example, Martin Novak, who's a uh, professor at Harvard of uh, evolutionary theory, has been uh, uh, pushing the notion and insisting that we should see ourselves not only as competitive in terms of biology, but as collaborative. And, in fact, our sociality as human beings is, is astounding. And a great characteristic of our species, but is in fact part of uh, evolutionary uh, principles all along. Because after all, how would you get cells even cooperating if everything was competitive from the get-go?
0: What's striking is that there are all these studies that suggest that free will uh, doesn't exist. And yet beliefs are so uh, personal and so firmly held. How How does a person let go of them?
1: Yes, beliefs are indeed very personal. In fact, we identify with them. We have a lot of beliefs about ourselves and beliefs that people who are dear to us hold. And those are uh, very personal in the sense that they really define what part of what a self is. When Spinoza talks about the canatus, or when uh, Panksepp talks about the, the biological evolutionary seeking system, Interestingly enough, it becomes the survival not only of my body, but of my mind, and not only of just my head, my brain, but of the contents of it. So I want to hold on to them because they are me. And the more me they are, the more I'm identified with those beliefs, uh, the more I want to hold on to it. Some of the research comes from Drew Weston, who has investigated uh, political beliefs and how we, uh, how we hold on to them for dear life, so to speak. And one of the things he's found is that when people's uh, uh, political beliefs are at stake— and they have to assess, uh, you know, examples of situations or hypothetical situations that he gives them in psychological testing. Their cognitive areas of their brain shut off and their emotional areas go berserk. So these beliefs uh, are highly emotional beliefs that we are tremendously invested in. And free will is one of them. And free will is one of them because it is so connected to um, our sense of who's good and who's bad. And whether we can blame people and whether we can justify ourselves and feel good about ourselves. So it's a very highly emotional kind of belief. And also it's a cultural belief that has tremendous uh, cultural underpinnings and keeps being emphasized again and again in our institutions and embodied in those institutions. So we become extremely attached to it and uh, feel threatened uh, by uh, giving it up.
0: Given all these studies, given the absence of free will, how then do we go about cultivating ethical behavior in ourselves or in our children or in our society?
1: I think one of the uh, things—we must not get discouraged, and in fact, we must see this as the glass half full— and one of the ways I like to put it is we can't choose to be good, but we can learn to be good. <laughs> we can learn to be better. We can learn to have broader views. We can learn to identify with all kinds of people and not limit ourselves to just those around us who uh, are yes people for, that we are for each other. Uh, so we need diversity. Diversity is absolutely key. We need people who are different Uh, uh, we need to learn from people who are different, who see the world differently and understand how they see it and begin to expand our view. Uh, So that that would be one key. Uh, Another would be we have to protect whistleblowers who interfere with our cognitive dissonance, with our love of our own ideas and of our own selfiness and of our own self-righteousness. Uh, it's very important to have those checks and balances and also really to have legislation and whatever it takes to protect whistleblowers in every possible context i didn't talk very much or just mentioned groupthink but groupthink is a, is a, is, a, is a significant problem groupthink being uh, small communities where authority is uh, is unquestioned, and that uh, people are, are scared of speaking their mind or uh, want to appeal to those authorities. We need uh, mechanisms that break that frame, that challenge people, uh, uh, so that we don't fall into groupthink, which is always a danger. So provincialism, in other words, narrowness of viewpoint, is is really a tremendous danger. It's not only a danger, an intellectual danger, but it's a moral danger. And that is one of the major moral dangers that we find exhibited in the Holocaust. Uh, it, the narrowness of view, the lack of questioning, the killing off of people who had different views very early on. These are danger signals.
0: Heidi Rabin, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you so much for having me on. Heidi Rabin is a professor of religious studies at Hamilton College. Her book is titled The Self Beyond Itself, An Alternative History of Ethics, the New Brain Sciences, and the Myth of Free Will. It's just out from the new press. We want to know what you thought of our conversation today. So send us an email at podcast at tabletmag.com Or go to our website, tabletmag.com, search for Vox Tablet, and go for it. Post a comment. Vox Tablet is produced by Julie Subrin. I'm your host, Sarah Avery. Thank you so much for listening. Join us again next week. We're going to look at new evidence surrounding the Dreyfus Affair. We hope you'll join us.